Hey, so in the um, early centuries of the church, um, for the first time, it became necessary um, for the church collectively to define the first universally accepted uh, statements of doctrine. In the early days, they didn't even think of it, but became as heresy began to become more defined, they realized there had to be some universally accepted statements about what was in Orthodox Christian faith and that which was out of it. And so in the early centuries, the, the first of these began to be developed and accepted. Now, today, these early statements of doctrine, we call them creeds, but they were just collective statements that they accepted. This is what Christians believe. Perhaps the earliest of these and the simplest of these is called the Apostles' Creed. Um, and it's still used widely today. In, in fact, I would like to begin with that. And, and maybe if we could put it up here for, for those of you who are here, why don't we read it together? This is one of the earliest universally accepted statements of this is what Christians believe. Read it with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is probably the earliest universally accepted simple expression of what Christians believe. The emphasis clearly was on Jesus. That is where most of the heresy and the controversy centered. As the centuries went by, it began to focus more on that. But this is the first essential statement. So you could say, in many ways, this right here, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, is the first generally accepted doctrine across the board of what Christians believe about the church. Now, for Protestants, that makes some people a little bit nervous. <laughs> I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, what, what am I signing, signing on to? Relax. It, it may not be, cause you to be quite as nervous as you think. The original sense of the word Catholic simply means universal or the whole. So usually Protestants feel a little more comfortable if they say, I believe in the universal church. But there's nothing wrong with that word. That's all it meant. It meant, I believe in the holy, universal one church, I believe in this as essential to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes when the Bible talks about it, it definitely clearly has this sense. For instance, if you have your, your Bible, there's just a couple of passages in Ephesians I would like to start with. Ephesians really emphasizes, on, emphasizes this one holy Catholic universal body of believers. So for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, some great verses. I'll back up just to read a little bit of verse 18. Uh, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same when he raised Christ from the dead. 
seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Essential to understanding Jesus is not only that he was that he was crucified, that he died, he rose again, he's now ascended and seated on high, but he is now head of the body, his one church. And he picks up that sense over in chapter 4, when he says chapter 4 and verse 3, he continues, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, for there is one body and one spirit Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he goes out of his way to say, just like there is only one God, there's only one faith, there's only one hope, only one baptism, only one spirit, there is only one body. This is the church of Jesus Christ of which he is the head, he is the cornerstone, the apostles are the foundation, but it is the church of Jesus Christ and there is only one of them. Um, as 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 we were praying in praise, for what Jesus has done for Tricia, it brought to mind Hebrews chapter 12, which says, which speaks of the church of the firstborn whose names are recorded on the roll in heaven. There is only one true church role in all of the universe, and it is in heaven, and every person who belongs to Jesus' name is recorded there, and that's where we get the sense, and when the role is called up yonder, I'm going to be there, because there is a role, Hebrews chapter 12, and every single name who belongs to the church of the firstborn is on that role. So we believe, as the early church said, in one holy Catholic universal church. Now, having said that, somebody might say, they might say, well, it sure seems like there are a lot more than one church. I mean, just if you look around, right? I mean, in fact, sometimes when you start looking at it, it's it's almost mind-boggling how many different churches there are. Do do you know that here in the United States of the 350,000 local congregations that, that, um, that are Christian congregations, those 350,000 congregations are broken up into more than 250 different kinds of denominational groups. Did you know that just here in the United States, there were that many subdivisions of churches? It, It is a stunning, stunning number of varieties of churches. So, uh, there are Bible churches, of course, um, but there are also Adventist churches and Armenian churches and quite a number of sub-varieties among them. There are Brethren churches and Plymouth Brethren and Grace Brethren and United Brethren and Old German Brethren and the New Conference of Old German Brethren and, and a few more Brethren. There are Baptists, lots of Baptists. <laughs> American Baptist, North American Baptist, General Baptist, Regular Baptist. I suppose in contrast 
to irregular Baptists. There are Duck River Baptists and Free Will Baptists. There are Landmark, Missionary, Primitive, Progressive, Reformed, and Separate Baptists, Seventh-day Baptists, United Baptists, and certainly Southern Baptists. There are Catholics, more than you might think. There are Roman Catholics, but there are also liberal Catholics. There are Maryavite Catholics, and there are Polish National Catholics, which are headquartered in Scranton, Pennsylvania. There are at least a dozen varieties of Orthodox, 15 different kinds of Church of God, many different assortments of Church of Christ, Congregational, Anglican, Episcopal, Evangelical, Evangelical Free, Evangelical Covenant, Foursquare, Assemblies of God, Nazarene, Wesleyan, lots of Methodists, United Methodists, Evangelical Methodists, Free Methodists, Southern Methodists, and African Episcopal Methodists, lots of Lutherans, some Lutherans come from Wisconsin, others come from Missouri, Lots of Presbyterians, including the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination and the second Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. There are Quakers and there are Shakers. And of course, not to be overlooked, the Schwankfelter churches of western Pennsylvania. That's, that's just a... Schwankfelters. They're, anyway, it's a group. But 250 varieties of denominations just just here in the United States, and and it's impossible to say how many kinds of non-denominational churches there are, but there are a lot of different churches that are floating around out there. And and I have to say, just as an aside, I I would have to imagine that if the Apostle Paul was here, his, his mind would just be spinning. This would be absolutely unthinkable. It is what it is, you know, I mean, it's, it's what we live with, but there is a mind blowing, number of different kinds of churches out there. So how in the world can we say with a straight face that we believe in one holy Catholic church when in fact there are so many? How can, how can we say that? Well, for starters, because the Bible talks about it that way. So oftentimes when the Bible talks about the church, it has this sense of the one true church the one that is who's enrolled in heaven, that church. This is what we would call the universal church. And sometimes when the Bible talks, it has this sense in mind. So whenever you see the word church, you kind of have to say, what are, what are we talking about here? And usually you can tell, are we talking about this spiritual universal body, all believers, all times, all places, if you belong to Jesus, you're in, or more specifically. Sometimes when people talk about the universal church, you may hear them say, big C church. That's kind of a common, it just means this, the, the big church to which everyone who is a believer in Jesus belongs to. So this is composed of all true believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, if you in this instant of time become a believer in Jesus, you don't even know how church works, where it belongs. It doesn't matter. You're, you're already in. You're instantaneously into this church. And so this is not only believers in all places and all stripes and varieties, and no matter what kind of brand name is on the sign out front, even all time. All time. So those who have gone before and those who come after, when Hebrews talks, of, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the company of believers, that is the church. All believers, all times, all places belong to it. No matter what your brand is, your history, your style, if you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, then your name is on the roll and you belong to that one true eternal church. But this one universal church, is gathered together in individualized local churches. 
These are smaller, true expressions of this great church. And then you'll hear sometimes people call this little c church. So big c church, little c church, universal church, local church, call it whatever you want. But it has both senses of this. And by the way, most often, um, most often when the church is spoken of in the New Testament, the great majority of times it is talking about these localized expressions, the local church like Bethany Bible Church, Phoenix, Arizona. Most often it has this sense. And so we see this in the Bible. We see it, the church of the Thessalonians, the church that is at Corinth, the church that is meeting in Prisca and Aquila's house. We see the church specifically referred to. So it's okay to talk about both ways, the church that is localized here and the church to which everyone belongs everywhere. This great, grand, universal church of Jesus Christ locally expressed in gatherings of believers who band themselves together intentionally to both be and to do what God is calling us to. Now, I want to share with you this morning one of my favorite questions. In fact, this is one, if I'm, if I'm interviewing someone for a ministry staff position, this is my favorite question to ask. So if you ever find yourself interviewing with me, you're going to nail it. This is my favorite question to ask. So here's what I like to ask. When does a gathering of Christians become a church? When does a gathering of Christians become a church in a biblical sense? I mean, because let's admit it, there are gatherings of believers They meet every single day, and they're all, like, amazingly wonderful. I mean, we couldn't even calculate, right? There's there's three guys that meet. They've been meeting for the last 32 years at Denny's every Tuesday at 6 o'clock, and they, you know, and they read the daily bread, and they pray, and they share, and that is, that is, and Jesus Christ is in their midst, because where two or three are gathered together, there he is, and it's, and it's wonderful. And, and on Thursday nights, there's 75 women who gather for BSF, and on Wednesday nights, there's teenagers in a converted garage meet for Young Life, and then there's the Christian Medical Society, Society and they meet for weekly meetings and, and there are home fellowships and there are worship concerts and all of these are amazing, wonderful, good gatherings of Jesus Christ. But the question I'm at is at what point does a gathering of believers cross a line and become what the Bible would call a church? Don't worry, I'm not going to call you out. Or you, sir, in your jammies, in your fuzzy slippers, you either. I'm not. And by the way, you'd be surprised how few people really can nail this one. So you're, you're going to be, you're going to be up on this, but at what point do we have a local church on our hands? Is it when it has a sign out in front? It's a registered nonprofit. It has a name. It has a regular meeting time. Now we could answer this some different ways, but let me give you my favorite practical answer. I believe that a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ becomes a church at the point that it collectively embraces the whole identity of what Jesus Christ is calling his people to be and to do. Let me say it one, one more time. I believe that a gathering of believers becomes a church when it collectively embraces together the entire mission of what Jesus Christ calls his people both to be and, and to do. We could nuance that out a little bit, but, but basically I think that that covers it. Now here's the difference. There are gatherings of Christians that will embrace part 
of what the body of Christ needs. And there's nothing wrong with that. For instance, there are fine Christian schools. They're focused on Christian education. There could be some that are they're focused on, on, in Jesus' name, building houses for those that do not have houses there. Foreign missions. There could be many different things. Um, in, encouragement, evangelization, distributing Bibles. All wonderful things important to the kingdom. But they say, this is our mission. And this is the piece we do. If you're a church, you don't have an option of saying, well, He's calling us to feed the hungry and to go to the poor. Yeah, we just don't do that part. If you're the church, you have to say, that's a call on us, even if we don't know how. There are also, there are gatherings of believers that focus on certain parts of the kingdom. They go, we are the Christian businessmen's society. And so we're focused on Christian businessmen. That's awesome. That's good. But that's only, but one of the things of the church of Jesus Christ is that it is everybody. Whereas neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. You say, we, we're about taking the gospel to college students. That is awesome. That's just not the church. Because you can't have a church that says we're only for this sub-demographic group or only this piece of the mission. It crosses a line and becomes a church, at which point you say, if God calls his people to do it, then at that point, somehow we have, to, we have to embrace that piece. So a gathering of believers becomes a local church when it embraces the entire identity, the entire mission, the entire responsibility for what the Bible is calling us to do. So if we're the church, and we are a church here, we never have the option of flipping a page in the Bible, seeing something there and go, yeah, we'll let somebody else pick up that part. We've got to say, even if we don't know how, that's, that's not just for me, that's for us. Because we are the expression of the body of Christ. Now you say, what if a fellowship isn't ready yet? I mean, maybe they've just been meeting in a living room for, you know, two weeks. I mean, they, they probably don't have a whole, you know, program for everything. What, what about that? The important part is that a church embraces it. Kind of like an individual believer embraces, say, this is God's call on my life. Say, I don't think I even understand everything that he's calling me to. And I I certainly don't even know how I would do it. How would I give as generously? How would I obey as, as, you know, as, as fervently? How would I do that? I don't even know. But I just know if it's God's call on my life, he will equip me and he will empower me to grow into that which he's called me to be. He will equip me to that which he is called. He doesn't call me to that which I am equipped. So a church is like that. We embrace it. Even if we don't know how, by faith, we are going to embrace what God's calling us to do. And we believe that we will in time be able to embody that. Quick story for you. In southern Sudan, there's a refugee camp flooded with tens of thousands of people fleeing violence and oppression. These people have literally nothing. From a worldly perspective, their situation seems desperate, but they still matter and God still has his people there. Just outside that camp, there is a great tree. And believers in Jesus Christ gather each week there under that tree to worship. They are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. They are persecuted, but not forsaken. They are struck down, but not destroyed. They are Christians who are believing that God will hear their cries and answer their prayers. In fact, they have formed a church in the shade of that great tree. The shade of the trees, their only building, their voices, the only instruments, their lives, the only offerings they have. 
But underneath those branches, amid the dust and sweltering heat, the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well. Now, here's the part that caught me about the story. Posted on the trunk of that tree is a sign. And it is the name of the newly founded church that meets on that spot outside the refugee camp. It reads this. Doro Christian Church and World Evangelization Center. They have embraced the vision, trusting that God will equip them to do them. They've escaped with nothing but their lives. They have no place to gather but the shade of a tree. They have no resources to speak of at the moment, but they are a congregation that has embraced the vision for what God will do through his people and how he will use them not only to sustain his people, but through them to carry the gospel from that spot to the very ends of the earth. They may not know how, but they trust that God will enable them because this is his agenda for the world. And because they are his church, they embrace the whole thing. Doro Christian Church and World Evangelization Center. When does a gathering of Christians become a church? Let's flip the question around. When does a Christian church become a gathering? When does a Christian church become a gathering? And this is the part where we want to get practical into our lives today. When does a Christian church become a gathering? It's a nonsensical question. Because there is no other kind. Either a church gathers or it is not a church, period. Now, sometimes we, we, over, we overthink it a little bit too much. We try to think like theologically about like what is the nature of the church. But the reason why we can say a church either gathers or it's not a church is because literally that's what the word means. So when, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The word church there is ecclesia. It's used 114 times in, in the New Testament. It's not really a particularly religious word. Now, we think of the word church, and that has immediate religious connotations, but ecclesia didn't at all. It simply meant a gathering. It meant a meeting. It meant assembly. And we even see it used in the New Testament in non-religious ways. We would see it described of like a, a political assembly or a gathering of citizens that are coming together for a meeting. It's a gathering. It's a meeting. It's an assembly. And so whenever the earliest readers of the Bible would speak or say it, they would, that's all they would say. They would say, and I will build my gathering. I will build my assembly. I will build my meeting and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's the most basic sense of what the word means. So to ever even think like, is it necessary for a church to gather? It would be a contradiction in terms. Either the gathering gathers, either the assembly assembles, the meeting meets, or it isn't. Because that is in the most basic sense of what the very word means. So the gathering gathers. Now, of course, in the world we're living in today, people ask me, well, what if the church can't gather? Well, then the church creatively gathers as best as it can, as often as it can, in the spirit of it, until things get easier. That's the way it's always been in the church. So in the early centuries of the church, when, when persecution broke out in, in Rome, the church went underground. And I don't mean that figuratively, I mean it literally. Literally. 
That's why they went down into the catacombs. You know what the catacombs were, right? Those, these were tombs that had been carved out in the soft rock. If they went down, that was the one place where they'd leave them alone. So they went underground, and that's how they figured out how to meet. And whether it's secret house churches in China or in behind the Iron Curtain, there have been times, 1918 flu epidemic, as creatively, as best we can, as long as we can, we, the church keeps gathering. Next week, you'll get to hear from Rada, and you'll get to hear a real-life story. What happens? Not when we're in the middle of, the, of a pandemic, but what happens when literally it is a capital crime to confess Christ and to gather together? How's the church stay alive? And like I said, Pol Pot's dead. The Church of Jesus Christ in Cambodia is well alive. It can be done. I wonder someday, do you think maybe like 75 years from now, you think they'll be talking about, well, you remember back in the big pandemic of 2020 and they'll be talking about our Zoom calls? You know, like, yeah, well, they had these Zoom calls and everybody just about went insane on them. But that's how they did it. That's how the church stayed alive. I don't know what they're going to say about us, but people have been through worse. But when the church can't gather normally, we gather as best we can, as often as we can, until it becomes easier. But one way or another, the church gathers because if it doesn't gather, it's not the church. Now, let me say this, just in case you wonder where I'm at. I hate COVID-19. Just so I I don't, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I just want to make that clear. I hate COVID-19. I hate face masks. I hate social distancing. I I mean, I hate limited capacity. I I think I'm about one week from hating Zoom. I mean, I, you know, like all of it. I don't, there in no way, shape or form as a pastor or a human being, do I like this. I don't like this. But having said that, and I know that this is struggle, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, I, I appreciate you, you guys being here. But the truth of the matter is, even if there was no COVID-19, in the best of times, and there are no declarations that are coming down from the governor or the state or CDC, believers just like us, not us, but just like us, believers just like us, all the time, in total freedom, neglect the habit of gathering together as an essential part, not just of our spiritual life, but of their own spiritual life. Now, it's it's easy right now to to complain about what's coming down to us, but there are times when it's totally within our control. Now, granted, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people you know, but, but we, we neglect the habit the discipline, even starting at the actual identity of being the gathering of Jesus Christ. But this is not what we do. This is who we are. Now, now here's where we want to get real personal. I need you to open your, open your Bibles. That was, that was just the introduction there. So I need to, it was, it was a long, it was a long introduction. I need, I need you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, the reason why this is so essential, that the gathering is not what we do, the gathering is most essentially who we are, is because this isn't important to the health of the church to show up and gather. It's important to the spiritual health of you that you show up and gather. 
And I mean whether that means in the worship center, sitting, sitting here as best you can, as often as you can, e- even if you're, you're in your fuzzy slippers. And, and thank you for being there, even with your fuzzy slippers. I don't care how you do it. But with the, as much intentionality as you can to press, and not just into the presence of God, but press into the people of God, into the presence of God. This becomes essential. Now, now the book of Hebrews, and, I, and I'll just give you a flying overview. The book of Hebrews was written with the idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus and holding on to hope in the midst of difficult times. Now tell me that doesn't sound relevant. So if you're not having trouble right now fixing your eyes on Jesus, you're not having any trouble holding on to hope in the midst of difficult times, then you know, go ahead and go make your bologna sandwich or whatever. This won't relate to you. But for the rest of us that are saying, you know, right now, I actually could use a little help fixing my eyes on Jesus and holding on to my confession of hope in the midst of difficult times. This book of Hebrews is for you. And especially as we get to the end, as we get to Hebrews chapter 10, and he starts calling to action. The writer, I'm going to start, uh, start up in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the first call. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Now let me stop there. So that's the first admission. The first admonition, pressing in to the presence of God to experience intimacy with God himself. Now, let me just pause here and let me ask you, those of you who are here, those of you who are watching at home, is there anybody listening to me who would say, easier said than done? Let us press into the presence of God with confidence. Anybody say, I've actually been feeling pretty spiritually dry. I mean, I'm, I'm actually feeling dis... I mean, I haven't given up on my faith or whatever, but if you just ask me, like, how close does the presence of God say? How spiritually vital do I feel? The, the truth is I kind of feel like I'm running, running on fumes. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Press in to the presence of God. You know, isn't it ironic if I, if I told you five or six months ago, say, hey, would you like to, for instance, have more time to spend every day in the Bible and prayer. Probably most of us go, yeah, if I could find the time, if I could find the time. Now, here's, here's the funny thing. Most of us are sitting here, and we got more time on our hands, and yet I talk to people who go, so how's that Bible reading thing going? Just having a hard, you know, it's like trying to kind of light wet wood, you know? I'm just having a hard time. Isn't it funny? We got all the time. But, and if I told you like five months ago, like, oh, I'll be having the most amazing quiet times because I have time. I'll be sitting at home. I'll just, I'll just be in the word. I'll be spending time with God. We're going to be praying together. It's going to be so amazing. And it's like, yeah, I, I'm trying to even think if I even did that last week. Now, maybe not you, but maybe there's somebody like that. Isn't that interesting? You got the time, but the spiritual nearness, something has happened there. He says, press into the presence of God with, towards, with confidence. Continue on. In the next verse. Then he says, let us hold unshakably to the hope we profess. Because he used promise faithful. So the second thing he encourages. 
unshakable hope. Hold on to unshakable, unbreakable, unswerving hope. How's your hope quotient doing right now? Because I'm talking to people all the time, and they're feeling a lot of things besides hope. Fear, anxiety, nervousness, uncertainty, negativity. Like anybody feeling like, yeah, I, like I have no idea how this is going to come up, but I'm telling you what, I'm just brimming with hope. Those people are, are in kind of in short supply, at least as I'm talking around. He says, press in with confidence in the presence of God. Hold on to this unshakable hope. And then he says, and let us consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Two things there. The first thing is be compelled with one another to love. How are you feeling? Do you just feel like you're brimming with love right now? Because I'm telling you, you know what? When I'm on the Facebook or I'm on the 17, I feel like there aren't too many people that are brimming with love right now. There's a lot of hostility, I mean, about everything. Oh, my goodness, face masks and politics and riots. And I, I don't know if it's just me. I feel like people are honking their horns more. Like, what is, what is this angst that is here? I mean, how many of us would say, hey, I don't know what's going on out there, but I'm telling you, I am just brimming with love. I see people who vote the exact opposite. And what I feel is love. People feel completely different about the pandemic. I'm just brimming with love. Any, anybody listening to me say, you know what? I, I probably could up my uh, love quotient right now. And good deeds. Compelled to good deeds. And again, how, how are you feeling about that? Maybe you got time on your hands. I hear people. I hear people and they're like, Look, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm not even trying to change my neighbor right now. I'm just trying to hunker down and get through this thing. I mean, if I can get through this thing and still have my sanity together, I'm going to consider that a win. It's like, well, well what, about, what about good deeds to a hurting world? It's like, I, I'm sorry, my, my battery on that is just down. This, this seems so convicting to me. This seems so convicting to us. That we, that we're being called to spiritual vitality in the presence of God, that we would be marked by this unshakable, this unshakable hope, that we would be propelled by love, that we'd be compelled by good deeds. But when people like us look back and go, I'm telling you what, I'm just not, I just don't have it. My battery is too empty to be marked by hope and love and good deeds and spiritual vitality. Oh, and then he says, not giving up gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, it's supposed to provoke the question when you say, how in the world can I keep that spiritual vitality in the presence of the Father alive? How can I keep unshakable hope alive even when I'm in the midst of these troubled times? How do I keep my love quotient up? How do I keep Held by good deeds, do not give up gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, not you, but people you know, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gathering together isn't what we do. Gathering together is who we are. And your spiritual health and vitality is dependent 
dependent upon this discipline because that's what's supposed to happen in this place. When Jesus Christ is in first place, when the Holy Spirit is free to work, when the word is central, we encourage one another and we come back out of these things say, I have no idea how, when, or why this thing's going to fix itself. But I'm telling you what, I could not be more hopeful because I know who's on the throne and I know that this all ends well. And I'll tell you what, I may be stuck in my house, but I have never felt so close to the Father and to his mercy in my life. And the whole world may be going crazy, but I'm telling you what, I'm being filled up with a love nonetheless. You can say whatever you want. I'm going to love you even more. And I'm feeling more motivated to look if it has to be closer to home. How can I be propelled to do good deeds to make a difference in the lives of people around me? That's what we're supposed to come out of this place saying. Don't give up gathering as is a habit of some. So I, I just want to encourage you. You're, you're, you're watching from home right now. I want to encourage you. You may not be able to come back and join us next week. You may not be able to come back and join us for weeks or months to come. It's okay. You're going to hear the story about Cambodia next, next week. People have been through worse. But I do want to encourage you as best you can, as often as you can, as intentionally as you can, find gatherings of the church of Jesus Christ, press in, not for the good of us, but if you must do it for the good of you, because you need the hope in your life, don't you? You need that intimacy with the Father, don't you? You need your love quotient raised up. You need your good deed quotient pushed further. This is where it happens. The gathering of Jesus Christ. This isn't something we do. This is at its essence who we are. So Heavenly Father, we we just believe that we have pressed in together into your presence in faith today and we believe that you're going to answer our prayer and that you're going to build our hope back up as we leave this place today and that we're going to experience your nearness and we're going to be filled with more love. We're going to be pushing to make a greater difference because we obeyed and we did what we are. We gathered together. Thank you for the technology we have. We th- I, I thank you that people are right now pressing in. And they're doing it on podcasts and YouTube and, and Facebook and websites. And I don't know, maybe stuff I don't even know. But they're pressing in. And, and people are gathered here together in this room. And we are, whatever way we can do it, we are making it a habit. Because this is who we are. And so I pray that for my sisters and brothers who have gathered together by your Holy Spirit right now, even in a tangible way, I pray that you would touch them. Touch them to maybe feel a nearness they have not felt. Touch them with a softness of heart. Touch them with a sense of hope. Those that are pushing in and, and they're beginning to count the days, I wonder how long I can hold on that just like a ray of sunshine, they would have a sense of hope, just enough to say, this is real. And when you take me at my word, and you gather together, I will bless and fill your lives. Do it, Father, according to the promise of your word through your son, Jesus Christ, by the agency of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.